we are doing a commentary on the Desire of Ages, chapter 79, titled, It is Finished. And what this commentary is attempting to do is understand this chapter, to, to explain what is going on and what uh, she means by a lot of things that I used to not understand. So, and we're on page five of the document, and we are ready to begin with the bottom paragraph. And Christina, why don't you read? All heaven and the unfallen world had been witnesses to the controversy. With what intense interest did they follow the closing scenes of the conflict? They beheld the, sav- the Savior enter the Garden of Gethsemane. His soul bowed down with the horror of a great darkness. They heard his bitter cry, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Matthew 26:39. As the Father's presence was withdrawn, they saw him sorrowful with a bitterness of sorrow exceeding that of the, of the last great struggle with death. The bloody sweat was forced from his pores and fell in drops upon the ground. Thrice the prayer was delivered of deli- for deliverance was wrung from his lips. Heaven could no longer endure the sight, and a messenger of comfort was sent to the Son of God. Keeping in mind that Jesus died from a broken heart, this means that Jesus experienced most of the final death in Gethsemane. Apparently, the angels were getting the full load of Satan's unmasking then and there, and that's why an angel could be sent to strengthen him. If this hadn't happened, Jesus would have died there before the cross. Thus, sin and its consequences are are a chiefly emotional experience. It cannot be otherwise, since sin is the offspring of Satan's administration of force. When one experiences force, one experiences the truth, uh, the opposite of truth and love, and thus a violation of one's personhood and well-being. This makes the experience emotional, veering a person away from an intelligent appreciation of God's character that creates a balance between cognitive and emotional intelligence. Okay, any comments or observations or questions? So what would have been the consequence if Jesus had died there in Gethsemane and not on the cross? Good question. What do you think? What would have, what would have been the result to the universe, to the world, if Jesus had died in Gethsemane and not on the cross? Well, I think um, the, the cross uh, represents uh, persecution. Um, uh, Jesus could have died in Gethsemane, but... Um, but it, it, but to, to really carry our burden of sin, um, back then when you broke the law or something, you, you would um, be crucified or whatever to um, to whatever extent you broke the law. Um, so by taking all our sins, God had to die on the cross because um, everyone else who did something wrong, um, to the extent. That hmm. yeah, I mean yeah. They, they since they were would have been uh, crucified, he took our place to be crucified. I I hadn't thought of the cross as a kind of like a legal symbol in that sense. <coughs> it is a legal symbol, and I I think what I'm trying to develop here is the thought that um, and I'm not sure we come to it yet. It may be later on. Uh, 
that in, in the whole crucifixion of Jesus, we see the legal model actually being portrayed for what it really is. In, in the Garden of Gethsemane, all that can be seen is the consequences of sin. And, and that's, not, that's not well defined. It's, it's, okay, Jesus bore our sins, what does that mean? But if by the time he takes it to the cross, we, see, we have seen he's gone through a trial, uh, a trial that's a, a prevarication of, injust, of justice. It's really in the unjust. And he's gone through that trial. He's gone through all the legal uh, mechanisms that Satan has ever developed throughout human history. And now we can see what the legal model leads to. It leads to actually taking God and tri- tr- putting him on trial according to our view of justice. And... Uh, putting him to the cross maybe there's another aspect that I think of Jesus said I if I be lifted up speaking of the cross will draw all to myself if he died in Gethsemane his, his death would not have been public right. it would have been very very private and without a public death how could he use that to draw everyone to himself and of course that all is not just human beings in in the Greek it's not all people it's not all humans it's all inclusive meaning the whole universe Heaven beheld the victim betrayed into the hands of a murderous mob and with mockery and violence hurried from one tribunal to another it heard the sneers of his persecutors because of his lowly birth it heard the denial with cursing and swearing by one of his best beloved disciples it saw the frenzied work of Satan and his power over the hearts of men. Oh, fearful scene! The Savior ceased at midnight in Gethsemane, dragged to and fro from the palace to judgment hall, arranged twice before the priest, twice before the Sanhedrin, twice before Pilate, and once before Herod, mocked, scourged, condemned, and led out to be crucified, bearing the heavy burden of the cross, amid the wailing of the daughters of Jerusalem and the jeering of the rabble. Note the interplay of all the systems of law and justice devised by Satan. This is the ultimate culmination of the legal systems invented by Satan through the Mesopotamians, working to try to force Christ and his followers into line. Judas is repeatedly on trial before Jewish law, before Roman law, before a king, before a governor, all parts of the ancient systems of force. And violence is everywhere. All of Satan's forces and systems are unleashed in an effort to break his will and force him to surrender to his principles. What makes Jesus' suffering here so important and salvific salvific is that he is not a legalist. Never once in his life has he by thought, word, or deed given into Satan's claim for his improved system of force. Even more importantly, Jesus is God. Now Satan has his chance to get to God as a victim so that he can try to turn God into the abuser and legalist Satan himself is. Okay, let's stop for a moment. Any, any comments on that? That says what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think, I think that clarifies my last question. And I, I think it's very interesting that he goes through all of these different legal systems. Uh, yeah, there isn't it's, one it's kind of a, It's a total... Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. a total example of legalism mm-hmm. here. Now if I understand more fully why God must stand by so often when his children are oppressed, 
<coughs> for him to intervene on a regular basis is to participate in the principles of Satan. Occasionally he has intervened, uh, flood, uh, etc. But this is not done to control people, but to remove the controller so that people can be free. He can uplift, sustain, comfort, heal, restore, and so forth, but he will not use force against force. Take Hitler, for example. And here's where I depart from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Think how easily God could have thwarted Hitler. Just read his biography, time after time. But God does not do this. Once again, Hitler is an exhibit before the universe that force and oppression self-destruct. And, and what I'm pointing to is nobody could kill Hitler. I mean, they all tried. I shouldn't say they all tried, but many people tried to kill Hitler, and none of them succeeded. Hitler killed Hitler. And, and I think that that is an exhibit to all of us that sin self-destructs, force self-destructs. And, and sin really is all about force. I, I, I don't know how to unpack that for you. That's an intuitive statement. But I think if we think it through uh, in terms of specific sin, that we're doing some kind of violence either to ourselves or to others when we sin. Heaven viewed with grief and amazement, Christ hanging upon the cross, blood flowing from his wounded temples, and sweat tinged with blood standing on his brow. From his hands and feet the blood fell drop by drop upon the rock drilled for the foot of the cross. The wounds made by the nails gaped as the weight of his body dragged upon his hands. His labored breath grew quick and deep as his soul panted under the burden of the sins of the world. All heaven was filled with wonder when the prayer of Christ was offered in the midst of his terrible suffering. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yet there stood men, formed in the image of God, joining to crush out the life of his only begotten Son. What a sight for the heavenly universe. Amidst the hell of Satan's principles pounding on Jesus, Satan's shortened version of eternal torture, Jesus does not in his humanity, nor does he in his divinity, forget to demonstrate the principles of his government. He forgives, forgives those who have made Satan's principles their own, forgives them while he suffers their abuse. Nothing could be clearer to us all, angel and human, that God does not use or submit to force. Any questions or comments? To me, this is the the ultimate confrontation <coughs> good and evil. If Jesus does not forgive his enemies at this point, he is a little like them. The only, the only way to get off the trajectory of what other people do to us is to forgive. But what makes this so powerful is that Jesus forgives while they are doing the abuse. You know, we talk about going through the stages of, of recovery from the abuse and, and maybe, let's say a woman who's raped, for example. It takes her years to be able to forgive the rapist and some women never do. Jesus did it while they were abusing him, which means that he loved them and he could only love them. Any other choice would make him a little bit like them. So we're seeing here that the two 
print nature, two print kinds of principles, freedom and, and <coughs> truth and love versus force. We see them juxtaposed against each other directly in opposition, polar opposition. The principalities and powers of darkness were assembled around the cross, casting the hellish shadow of unbelief into the hearts of men. The Lord created these things to stand before his throne. They were beautiful and glorious. Their loveliness and holiness were in accordance with their exalted station. They were enriched with the wisdom of God and girded with the panoply of heaven. They were Jehovah's ministers. But who could recognize in the fallen angels the glorious seraphim that once ministered in the heavenly courts? They once had the law of love written in their hearts and were eager to serve others. But they exchanged that for eternal measures, external measures, that compensated for the hollowness of mind they now had, bereft of the love of God. Apart from the dynamic principle of divine love in the heart, we love because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 Any of God's creatures will be left with only attempts to power. We seek power to the extent that we are bereft of love. No wonder so many Christians are frustrated in trying to overcome sin because they seek God's power to overcome instead of intelligently responding to his love and coming to trust him. Satanic agencies confederated with evil men in leading the people to believe Christ the chief of sinners and to make him the object of detestation. Those who mocked Christ as he hung on upon the cross were imbued with the spirit of the first great rebel. He filled them with vile and loathsome speeches. He inspired their ta taunts, but by all this he gained nothing. This is how a legal religion ultimately leads people to treat sinners. And in the legal system, Satan had inspired. Jesus was the chief of sinners. He would not obey the rules. He did not do right because he had to or was obligated to. Instead, love shone out of him from within. It was his very nature. But all his attempts to make Jesus obey or surrender to his principles failed. God is not like that. Jesus as a human being was not like that. And human beings don't have to be like that either. Okay. What do you think? We covered a little bit of territory here, so you can refer to any of the two paragraphs. The sentence that kind of stood out to me was, we seek power to the extent that we are bereft of love. Uh, and to me, that not only seems true, but just logical. If I cannot depend on trust of someone, I have to use an arbitrary kind of force to be safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a survival mode. Yeah. Power is where we go when we're trying to survive, and we feel the world is against us. Yeah, and, and I, I see this in the legal entities of Christianity so powerfully as people try willpower, any kind of power, to break addictions or to break bad habits or whatever. They, they try power when they need a complete <coughs> paradigm shift. They need, they need to receive love and they need that love to recreate in them uh, basically a new way of looking at life and a new value system and, and how they see other people. I think we have been terribly remiss as, an, as a church in preaching the power of the Holy Spirit 
instead of what the Holy Spirit really is about is the spirit of truth uh, and that truth is also and the fruit of the spirit is love and all the fruits that follow are simply aspects of that love hmm. something that I really liked is that uh, in that same paragraph the very last sentence when it says um, they seek God's power to overcome instead of intelligently responding to his love and coming to trust him uh, I've always heard the idea of like blind faith mm-hmm. and yet here it's saying that trusting in him and showing his love is the more intelligent thing to do and I think that's really interesting because it's not something that we normally perceive it's counters of where we've tended to go but I think all of us to some degree are caught up in that whole legal process of thinking legal think is not uh, inherent. It's, it's the opposite of inherence. It's, it's something contrived, it's arbitrated, it's um, man-made, it's artificial. Uh, relationships of love and trust are natural. They're the way God created us to be. And I, I think that's at the bottom of all of this. Could one sin have been found in Christ had he in one particular yielded to Satan to escape the terrible torture, the enemy of God and man have triumphed. Christ bowed his head and died. But he held fast his face and faith and his submission to God. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down which accused them before our God day and night. So Satan tried to torture Jesus into submission to his legal system of arbitrary obedience. If Jesus had had one sin in him, he would have sought to escape it through a legal means and thus would have yielded to Satan. Had he gotten angry with his enemies or simply indulged in self-pity instead of thinking with pity for his enemies, Satan would have triumphed. And what makes this all so incredible is that while he hung from the cross, he suffered the loss of the sense of God's loving presence. It seemed to him that God was angry with him, and that he was indeed the way Satan had made him out to be. It was in this setting that Jesus died victorious, submitting only to the sovereignty of divine love. He would not submit or obey the king of force. Any comments or questions? I do actually have a question. It says that... Um, if he had um, he would have sought to escape through the legal means and thus had yielded to Satan is it a sin to defend yourself because it seems like you know if he's done no sin he can't say like I've done nothing wrong so by going into does that create sin he, he does defend himself in a sense on trial but he he defends the people he defends himself against because he says actually it wasn't when he was on trial it was when he was arguing with the priests and Pharisees he says if I have done sin why do you seek to stone me mm-hmm. but then he says but he who and, and then but then later when he's on trial he says he who sent me he says to Pilate he who uh, has set this up has done the greater sin he, he seeks to excuse where he can so keep in mind Jesus isn't obeying a legal system here he's obeying the law of love and love is always about the other it's not about myself
That's the difference. Legal system is selfish. It's a very selfish system. It's, it's something we've done to protect ourselves. And, you know, this has tremendous implications for our world and, and where the rubber meets the road. What do we do with that if we obey the law of love? And that, that's a thorny issue because suppose a woman is raped. Does that mean she should just forgive the rapist and go on? Let him rape more women? Or should she try to get, seek justice? And, and the, the way I would see that, and, and I'll just throw this out to you, is she should seek justice for only one reason. To help, to, because she loves other people and wants to spare them, and because she cares about the person for whom she seeks justice. Because she wants him to be brought to realization of how he has injured that. And if our legal system were not so legal, were more loving, what we would do is what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission did in South Africa. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. I have a fabulous book at home in my library. Actually, I loaned it out, so I don't have it in my <laughs> library right now. <laughs> but it's called A Human Being Died That Night. It was written by a psychologist who is South African black. She interviewed one of the most hideous torturers of Africans in South Africa during apartheid. And she interviewed him and as a result wrote this book. And she helped to develop this Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Where what they did is they took all the people that once apartheid ended and the people were brought to justice who had done the terrible things that were done to the Africans. <coughs> they developed this commission to as kind of a public hearing. It was kind of like a Nuremberg trial, but it was it was less legal than that. It was it was a time when the victims could come and tell their stories to the perpetrators. <coughs> this is what you put us through. This is what happened to me. So that the perpetrators could hear the human beings voices that they abused. And and to me that's a powerful way of dealing <coughs> with a problem like that um, that is, is much more the loving way to do because now you're, you're facing them with the truth this is, this is what you did to us now's your opportunity to make this right to the best of your ability so it, it's a powerful book if you ever get a chance to read it uh, I recommend it Satan saw that his disguise was torn away his administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings. Henceforth, his work was restricted. Whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer await the angels as they came from the heavenly court, and before them accused Christ's brethren of being clothed with the garments of blackness and the defilement of sin. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. Thus Satan's administration was exposed, not as an improvement upon God's administration, but as a totally immoral and false system. A legal religion is an immoral one because it opposes the dynamic, descriptive law of love in which we love only because God first loved us. It purports to be moral, righteous, and holy, but when faced with love, it becomes demonically evil. 
Satan's administration was laid open to the universe when he murdered Christ, and he murdered him by using the systems of force, legal and kingly power, and he himself had inspired through human beings. These systems, in both the Jewish nation and the Roman Empire, were used against Jesus. The darker elements of appeasement through human sacrifice are echoed by Caiaphas. It is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. This would be how Satan's administration was exposed, because they were able, from Gethsemane to the tomb, to see the final results of Satan's regime of sin, and this included the results of the legal and kingly models, the very essence of his administration, and thus of sin itself. At the cross, the loyal universe saw the two systems of government, love and truth versus force, laid wide open in stark contrast. Okay, any questions or comments? Um, when, when Caiaphas says, it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. That's uh, utilitarian, utilitarian... Utilitarian ethics. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what's weird is, uh, is this would be how Satan's administration was exposed. Well, what exactly is, is that saying? Um, is that utilitarianism? Um, is, Satan's. Yeah, is, is Satan's form of exposing himself. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> Utilitarian ethics can easily lead us astray because we then forsake the individual, individual individuality for the mass. And the mass can be wrong. So... I haven't worked through that one yet, <laughs> but it, it's something to ponder, are these parts of Satan's constructs. Yet Satan was not then destroyed. The angels did not even then understand all that was involved in the great controversy. The principles at stake were to be more fully revealed, and for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. Man, as well as angels, must see the contrast between the Prince of Light and the Prince of Darkness. He must choose whom he will serve. Do we understand now all that is involved? How can we when we, we're so close to sin that we can't see its forest for its trees? How can we when even angels who have watched it all develop still do not fully understand? If the principles at stake were to be more fully revealed than they were at the cross, then all the horrors seen in our world since Jesus' death are but a part of their unveiling. Greater understanding has also taken place in the world of the principles of love and truth. However, more is to be revealed. It is possible that the fullest revelation of these principles on both sides of the great controversy is to take place before Jesus comes. And would it not that fullest revelation naturally lead to the fullest choice? Is it possible that it is this that enables both sides, good and evil, to become fully mature or perfect? I have found in my own life that when faced in, with evil in any form and I seek to do the loving thing, which I just had an experience with that this week that I'm not allowed to tell you about, but I, where I had to admit my frustration with how someone was behaving recognize that the person that, that was doing the behaviors 
needed my love more than he needed my rejection of what he was doing. And and when when I'm having when I'm in those kinds of situations, I find myself it calls out either the worst in me or the best in me, depending on my choice. And that's how I see this whole thing happening: is that as as more and more violence takes place, people are confronted with the choice of how they're going to behave under difficult system, situations and under pressure and under force. And that, that requires decisions, and what decisions we make will either lead us to become more violent ourselves or will lead us to become more and more like Jesus. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan, and if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. When men broke the law of God and defiled his will, Satan exulted. It was proved he declared that the law could not be obeyed, man could not be forgiven. Because he, after his rebellion, had been banished from heaven, Satan claimed that the human race must be forever shut out from God's favor. God could not be just, he urged, and yet show his mercy to the sinner. This is where we're now approaching her, the heart of her statements that I have found the most difficult to understand regarding uh, the legal system versus the non-legal system of love. And so we may want to slow down a little bit here to try to take this all in. Satan claimed that God's law could not be obeyed. Such a claim would have to be based on legal reasoning since the heart of God's law is love and we love because he first loved us. The only other way it could be true is if God does not really love, since it is, his lo- it is his love that begets love in others. Love is by its very nature experiential. It cannot be commanded only one by love. Thus the law by its very nature is dynamic and descriptive, not legal. I'm going to stop there now for comments questions. In other words, to say that it's impossible to obey God's law is to say it is impossible to love. And that could only be true is if we were created defectively with the inability to love. I'm talking about now imperfection, not not after the fall. Okay? If we were created if we were created perfectly God's love, it would seem, would trigger a response in us of love unless we chose to go against it. But in a legal system, you can't keep all the rules. We've tried that and failed many times, right? Um, so, so that's why I say that Satan's claim that the law cannot be obeyed is based on legal reasoning rather than understanding the nature of God's law. And I, I'm starting to think now that like part of this whole paradox comes from Satan's paradigm of legalism. Because if you are working within legalism, it's he's true, he's right. Mm-hmm. You can't. And mm-hmm. any excusing of 
the punishment of sin is arbitrary. There's a very interesting sermon on uh, Vimeo uh, by Randy Roberts. I didn't get to watch all of it last night, but it has a little video clip at the beginning of it acted out by some, I'm, I'm sure, some members of Randy's church where they're trying to do the perfect thing. They're trying to be perfect, and they decide to call them the, the perfection section. <laughs> and they're talking about how they have a checklist and they've been marking it off, perfect, perfect, perfect. And he, he points out right initially in the, the bit of the sermon I was able to listen to that in, in, in an attempt to keep the law perfectly in a legal sense, and he doesn't use the term legal, but, but that's obviously what he's placing it in, either leads to just dismal depression because you, you keep failing, or it leads to pride that you think you have kept the law and, and now you've broken it utterly because you're proud. <laughs> but you don't know it. So, from within the legal model, it is imperfect. It is imperfect. It is impossible to keep the law. God is a God of truth and justice. But the way He is a God of truth and justice is because of His grace. Because of His grace, when we believe and have faith, we're justified through faith. As Romans 4 says, and when we're justified through faith, that counts as uh, righteousness. And I think it's James 2 verse 20, where faith without, without works is dead. I think what, what this is all saying is that through faith, through justification by faith, uh, the natural consequence is going to be following the law. I think that's, that's uh, God's love leads to us following the law, not the other way around. You see, uh, we'll come to this later on in this uh, article. Because, because the law is descriptive, when, when human beings fall outside that law, which is love, uh, they stop loving. But they're won back to love. That descriptive law works for their good. And that is what allows God to say, look, I can save them because they're within the law again. But in a legal sense, every sin must meet its punishment. Right? It's right up here. Uh, every sin must meet its punishment. And so somebody has to pun be punished. I don't know if you've watched the uh, 1998 version of Le Miserable. There's a new one out that I understand is not so good. <laughs> the 1998 version, you have Javert and Jean Valjean, right? The two protagonists. And Javert is determined that Jean Valjean has to suffer the punishment of his original theft and that he is corrupted basically. It's it's almost a real play out of Calvinism in the in the movie, and uh, he's he's inherently corrupt. He's evil, and therefore he must be punished. And if he can't be punished at the end of the movie, uh, Javert feels that he has to somebody has to die, and so Javert takes his own life. And to me, that's a, a profound illustration of how the legal how legal thinking works. And Jean Valjean doesn't adopt that legal thinking. He goes a completely different route. Justice was inconsistent with mercy. 
and every sin must meet its punishment. Satan viewed descriptive law as inflexible. Cause would inevitably be followed by effect. This only works with a slight twist, the twist that Satan invented, that descriptive law is arbitrary. The law of God is the law of love, and love is dynamic, living because God is its source. Descriptive law does not operate by itself. God is the basis and means by which it works. Since it is not arbitrary but dynamic, God in his love can either permit sin to reap its results, thus lovingly respecting the choice of its victims, or he can in love restrict those same consequences in those who choose to respond in trust to his love. In his effort to prove that God's law and government were indeed arbitrary, Satan twisted the meaning of mercy and justice. They became split from each other, with love becoming sentimentalism and just becoming legal retribution. The words, God could not be just and show mercy to the sinner, is a sentiment of many forensic theologians. God cannot forgive without exercising justice by executing the penalty for sin. So, Jesus' death was God exercising his justice so that we could be forgiven. This, then, brings mercy into legal conformity to justice, thus avoiding a sentimental view of it. Of course, Satan went beyond this in his declaration, but the premise comes from the same kind of thinking. Okay, let's pause there. Um, notice that what Satan tries to do is put love in a legal box and make it legal. And, and that it's what, you, what you end up doing is destroying it when you do that. Um, because, love, because love is a dynamic principle in living. It, to put it in a box is like trying to put light in a box. Uh, it becomes darkness. So, and I, but the thing that, that concerns me is that so many Christians today actually view it that way. They view love through a legal lens. And, and they're very concerned that you have an adequate amount of justice to offset this sentimentalism that they, they fear if you had just a completely loving system. Do you think that this system goes the same way towards the view that they had toward, that God had towards Israel? Um, with the same sort of like covenant, how they made everything very legalistic throughout their society, do you think that that was also one of the some of the problems that God faced with them? or Yes, definitely. It, and you can actually trace that, especially after they go to Babylon. Babylon was a highly legislated society. Uh, it is actually, you could go back to law as having begun in Mesopotamia. The very earliest forms of law and justice are very Babylonian. Babylonian thinking is extremely arbitrary in every way. And... Uh, there's all kinds of ties between the legal views of Babylonians and magic and religion and almost every facet you can tie it all together in, in that kind of legal thinking. Uh, and, and once Israel had went there and kind of started copying, oh yeah, we like that. We, we have a Hammurabi. We have Moses. And um, we, have, we have evil days uh, we have the Sabbath. 
they, they clearly took all of the institutions God gave them and turned them into Babylonian kind of legal entities. And, and that is, if you trace that, and someday I hope to do this, actually, if you trace that all the way from the Babylonian exile to the death of Christ, you can actually see how the legal model led directly to the death of Jesus. Hmm. Wasn't the fall, the fall of Judah, um, I was, I'm taking one of the classes with Dr. Ranzlin, and he suggested that uh, in uh, the first chapter of Amos that God calls out Judah for disobeying the laws of the Lord. And if the law here, as it says, is more dynamic, it's not arbitrary, then is that the law of love? Mm-hmm. Well, isn't Amos' whole concern is that they're cheating people, they're, they're stealing from people, they're, they're not defending the widows and the orphans and, and the aliens. And as a result, they're breaking the law of love. That's Amos' big concern. But he uses legal language because that's the only language they will relate to. Okay. The earth was dark through misapprehension of God, that the, the gloomy shadows might be lightened, that the world might be brought back to God. Satan's deceptive power was to be broken. This could not be done by force. The exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. He desires only the service of love, and love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only by love is love awakened. To know God is to love him. His character must be manifested in contrast to the character of Satan. I just want to insert a note here. This is Desire of Ages, page 22. Uh, I put it in here because I felt that before we could really understand the previous paragraph, we had to have this in mind. In the dynamic and descriptive law of love, we are brought to love, one to love, and transformed by love. This is not sentimentalism, but the pure and holy love of God. Not only is this how perfect beings keep the law, this is how imperfect beings may be healed and restored to keep the law. Love is not merely an abstract, objective concept. It requires a person and a dynamic source, God, to embody it, generate it, and keep it alive and creating love in other people. Love cannot exist apart from God, who is love. Thus, we cannot force ourselves to even work harder to obey. We obey because we are loved, and because we are loved, we love God supremely and our neighbors as ourselves. But since Satan was the first to bring up the notion of God's love as law, it must be that he saw love merely as a legal principle, and thus reasoned that no one could keep all of the rules for loving others perfectly. A sentiment expressed by many today, and it is true, unless we allow God's love in our hearts to work its work of transformation, we cannot love others, for we can only love to the extent that we are loved. Okay. Any comments? Uh, was that uh, citation MB106, was that Mountain Blessing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we have a similar statement down here below. Uh, that's thoughts on the Mount of Blessing. And I have 106, but I think it's really 109. There's, there's two paginations of this book, and so it's kind of confusing. Uh, but I think it's 109. 
When Satan rebelled against the law of Jehovah, the thought that there was a law came to the angels almost as an awakening, awakening to something unthought of. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing on that. Yeah. See, in the beginning there was no... God didn't line the angels up right after he created them and said, okay, here are the rules. <laughs> he, I mean, is that what your parents did to you when you were born? <laughs> okay, you live in my family, here are the rules. Uh, no, we don't do that. Children develop and they learn is an experiential process by being loved. And that love sometimes provides discipline, it, guidance, and so on, so that the child doesn't hurt themselves. But it's, it's not a legal process. If, uh, to the extent that a family becomes a legal process, it becomes abusive. For this reason, Jesus came to live a perfect life, to weave the robe of his kind of righteousness, dynamic living love, without one thread of human devising. That's from Christ's Object Lesson, page, Lessons, page 311. That is, he came not just to live a perfect life, but to reveal by the way he lived how obedience was possible by responding in love to the love of God revealed in Christ to show us what obedience really is, internal harmony with God's character, and thus to prove that it never was a legal, arbitrated, and thus forced compliance. In Satan's administration, it is impossible to obey apart from force and fear. In his construction of obedience, we are not one, but obey because we're told to. We do not obey because we see intelligently the good, ways of, the good sense of God's ways and because we delight in his love, and thus his law of love, but because of God's authority. Satan's model leads to performance of obedience without the heart and without the healing agency of God's love shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Satan's kind of obedience is not really obedience, but merely compliance, and mere compliance is a product of compelling power. Any thoughts or comments? So try to hold this in your mind um, before we move on because w uh, our time is up for today. But uh, as we move on, we're going to get more and more into this in terms of justice, in terms of law, and, and what, that has, what implications that has for understanding the law. So we will close with that. Uh, why don't we have prayer? And we'll close. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your love, not as something held over our heads like a giant stick, not something that you flaunt in our face, but that you gently warm our hearts with as we respond to it. We pray that we may fully respond to it, that your love in our lives can then reach out to love to others and we can love them in the way that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.